Well, before I go into our time of prayer, I feel the need at times to express this, to explain to people who may be new joining us and people who may be attending a worship service for the very first time. What we're getting ready to do is to go into our sermon time. What we, our practice is, is to try to work through each book of the Bible, verse by verse, to, to look at it within context, to have a time where we, we take a section of it and we meditate upon it and we teach through it. And the reason we do this is that the scriptures teach us to do this. In fact, we'll see the example of our Lord Jesus doing this, this uh, in our text from this morning. And in the process of this, we believe that something supernatural happens that the Holy Spirit works among us as we all come together to feed upon the Word of God. And then even after the service, our people love to talk and to, to digest the truth that we learn within the sermon. We even use our, our small group time on Wednesday night to talk about it as the Holy Spirit is working in each and every one of us to draw us to Christ, to conform us into his image. So what we're doing is important. It, it's not intended necessarily to be for, for entertainment purposes, but for us to be allowed to hear um, from the very words of God himself. Let's go to the Father and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you, Lord, that whenever we're confused about what you desire, Lord, you clear that up um, by providing us the opportunity to be able to be taught um, through your word, to have your Holy Spirit work through it, Lord, to change our hearts, to, to allow us to become more like your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray we would humbly submit to it today. And Lord, I pray particularly for those who are burdened by the need to be forgiven this morning. And Lord, I also pray for those who are burdened with the need to forgive someone else this morning. Lord, may we uh, understand the true nature of grace that has come to us through your Son, Christ. Amen. Well, we've reached the conclusion to our Lord's sermon in Matthew chapter 18. And before we examine our specific verses for this morning, once again, we need to see them within their overall context. The answer to Peter's question regarding forgiveness here becomes much more powerful when we consider it in light of the whole message. Now remember, this whole sermon by Jesus is about relationships between the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It began with the disciples asking who would be the greatest in the Lord's kingdom. And as we've seen, the answer is no one is greater than the other. Jesus wants to, us to view ourselves as little children dependent upon him and one another. We are to welcome each other despite our distinctions. We are to promote spiritual growth in the lives of one another, ensuring that we are not a temptation to cause each other to sin. And if one of us seeks to run away, the rest of us pursue the individual like a shepherd searching for lost sheep. And of course, we saw last week, if one gets to the point where they refuse to repent of sin, sin that is egregious and disruptive to the body, then we must have the courage to put that rebellious one out of the church in the hopes that it would awaken them from their stupor, cause them to repent and return to Christ. Now, of course, that only comes after much warning and demonstration of love to the unrepentant person. It is unpleasant and uncomfortable. Once again, it was a task the entire church is called to do, demonstrating that none of us are less important, that we don't pursue them when they stray, nor more important, that we would let them slide when they sin. Therefore, as Christians, we hold each other accountable. 
Now, I was asked a very good question after last week's sermon regarding verses 19 through 20. They asked me if the two or three gathered in the name of Jesus to make such a pronouncement are qualified elders. Now, that's a good question and an assumption we're likely to make. But in context, I don't think that is the case here. Jesus is saying no matter the size of the local congregation, it has the authority to make such a judgment upon individuals both for admittance into the body and dismissal. Let me begin here at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Remember, all of the yous in verse 18 are second-person plurals. We would say y'all in the south. This is the entire church that can bind or loose. And I believe the verses that follow speak to those who are capable of making such pronouncements, even if it's only two or three present operating under the authority of Jesus. They do not have to be pastors or elders or any church officers. This way, no one is above the other. Now, some might argue that in context, Jesus is speaking to the 12 disciples, and perhaps only the apostles were in mind here. But I would add, within the greater context of the sermon, Jesus is saying no one person in the kingdom is more or less than the other. We may have different gifts and talents, but in terms of status, we are equally loved and cherished by the Father. And as his children, bought by the precious blood of Christ, we are to demonstrate humility, and we are to welcome the little ones into the kingdom. So even if there are just a few believers in a small church plant, They don't need special officers looking over their shoulder as they practice admission or dismissal of members. No single individual has this authority, but such decisions must be done corporately. In such a scenario, as the body of Christ, the Lord is present among them to give authority to make such pronouncements. However, because we're all equal in status, And because church discipline is always, always, always done in the hopes of the repentance of the offender, what Jesus teaches next is vital to the church. Here, Peter pops into the narrative with another question for Jesus. And it's a logical one after Jesus just spoke about confrontation and church discipline. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Well, Peter's asking about the original context of verse 15, when we are personally sinned against. We should see this question in light of individual sin done to one another, not a sin that grew to the point where it needed to be dealt with corporately, where the entire body would need to be involved in determining the salvation of an individual. Now, historically, the Jewish rabbis taught that one should be willing to forgive offenses up to three times. That was the traditional number. Now, that sounds a little funny in my head. In my head, I have, I have this voice about holy hand grenades going, three shall be the number, all right? <laughs> Some of you understand what I'm talking about, and please forgive me if you do. <clears throat> but in the course of Jesus' sermon, Peter picks up that such a paradigm of church discipline will require forgiving an offender more than three times. So he automatically jumps to the next complete number, which is seven. That would be double what was originally required, plus one more. One would think 
That is an adequate number of chances, right? But as you can imagine, the gracious Lord Jesus will take forgiveness to a completely different level. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not setting a determinate number of times someone is forgiven, as though 77 is the exact number and one refuses to forgive on the 78th time. No, nor did he just pull randomly out of the air 77. But the number 77 times would be familiar to every Jewish boy. Now, if you will, please turn to Genesis chapter 4. This is found on page 4 of your pew Bible. Every Jewish male would have received the oral history of the Torah recited to them often. In fact, many were expected to memorize portions of it themselves. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have the lineage of Cain who murdered his brother Abel. Cain was cursed by God for his transgressions, and therefore violence became a normal pattern for his descendants. And the last descendant mentioned is Lamech, who epitomizes the sons of Cain. He is the first polygamist that's reported in the Bible. And he boasts of his viciousness, even making poetry about it. Let's read his little poem here, found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And here's our number. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. You can see the contrast. Lamech is offended by someone, and he doesn't forgive, but he extracts revenge. And in contrast to his ancestor Cain, he will do so 77-fold to his victim. There is no mercy, but revenge here is in overdrive. And typical, loving, graceful, merciful Jesus throws that into reverse and says, just as extreme as Lamech's spirit of revenge for an offense I want you to be just as extreme in your mercy. Jesus can say this because as God, he is the most merciful being that ever existed. His nature is holy, it is just, it is pure, and he stepped into this sin-contaminated world in order to save his people. And as we've seen in Matthew already, Jesus not only witnessed the sinful behaviors of others, he mingled and served with pagan Gentiles even, but he also knew the thoughts in the minds of everyone around him. Every thought of greed, every thought of exploitation, every thought of pride, every thought of hatred, every thought of lust, he was aware and exposed to. And yet he did not lash out, but he continued to serve, he continued to love, continued to call to repentance. And ultimately, he would allow himself to be taken into the hands of sinners, mistreated unjustly, mocked, and spat upon, whipped within an inch of his life, and then hung on a cross naked in shame. That would have been a great point to extract revenge on all those who offended him, right? But instead, he died at the hands of men. With such an offense to a holy God, God the Father should have just come down to earth and eradicated all of us. And he would have been absolutely just in doing so. The way we've denigrated his laws, good laws that command us to treat one another with kindness and dignity. And think about the way we treated his son. We did not honor him. 
oh, how we deserve justice and wrath. But, but what occurred on the cross is even more remarkable. Jesus didn't just overlook the sin of his elect. He received the punishment that we deserve for our transgressions against the holy God. As we read earlier in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Oh, the mercy and the grace here. I am sure that I sinned multiple times this past week without even thinking about what I was doing or, or even noticed that I had done so. I'm sure I had an impure thought. I'm sure I felt unjust anger towards another. I'm sure that I was selfish. I'm sure that at some point I did not obey God's command to love and act properly. I know I did not cherish Christ as I should have. And yet Christ died for all of that. He paid for that so that instead of receiving wrath, I might receive his care and love and healing for my sin. Jesus can command us to forgive 70-fold because he has forgiven us much greater than that. And I, for one, am eternally grateful. When I think of such mercy, how could I not be graceful in return? Turn back again to Matthew chapter 18. Now, to illustrate this point, this point of forgiveness, Jesus tells one of his masterful parables here. And again, we need to note, this is in relationship to those in the kingdom of heaven. What should citizens of the kingdom look like as they relate to one another? That is the expectation. What is characteristic of them? I say this because Jesus begins the parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And within this parable, we see an example of graciousness, an example of selfishness, and an example of justice. And this is followed by a pronouncement by Jesus about the nature of true forgiveness. The story is simple. And in its simplicity, it's, it's just so relatable. First, we have a gracious king. Now, it might not appear that he was gracious to begin with, but what you'll see uh, from the text, from the very beginning, he was so. It is time to settle accounts with his servants. And he has them brought to him one by one, and one of them owes him 10,000 talents. Now, if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, this is the equivalent to 20 years wages. That means the king had advanced this servant 20 years worth of salary, and his subject had yet to pay him back. He had given the servant chance after chance to make it right and still extended credit. Now was the day of reckoning, and he and his family were about to be sold off to repay his debt. Now, I, I want to be careful here, and it's a shame that I have to say this, but in this day and age, I have to do so. Jesus was not condoning slavery and human trafficking. This is a fictional story providing an illustration for his hearers using cultural norms. 
This was a normal practice in the first century. If you were in debt, you could be sold off as an indentured servant or thrown into prison to work off your debt, doing menial tasks that paid little, which essentially meant you would never pay off your debt. Rather, it kept you in a perpetual state of servitude. This was considered just and reasonable by first century standards. Taking out a loan that you don't intend to pay back was considered stealing, and it was dealt with as such. In fact, to receive any additional time to pay the debt off was considered a luxury. And that's what we're dealing with here. This king most likely had given the servant chance after chance to reconcile his debt, and it was clear that the servant had no plan for doing so. And according to verse 26, this servant foolishly thinks that if only he had a little more time, he could pay this debt back. But that never could occur. The debt is just too great. The servant pleaded for mercy, and as we're told, the the master took pity on the servant and released him. Not just released him from prison, but forgave his debt. All of it. What grace. That should have been transformative. Imagine owing 20 years' salary to someone, and they just erased the debt. Not you winning the lottery to to pay it off, because that would imply you had something to do with the obligation. But instead, the one you owed the debt to said, your debt is clean. I no longer demand compensation from you. Wouldn't you feel relieved? No more worry about being sold into slavery? No, no, No more worry about your family? You could start fresh? What an example of graciousness by the king. Now in verse 28, this forgiven servant immediately goes out to his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, which was about three months' wages. A significant amount, but one that was manageable to pay off. We don't know what the debt was for. Perhaps this was a business venture, and an investment that the two went into together where money would be recouped later. We don't know the circumstances. But the forgiven servant wanted the payment in full immediately. Now note that everyone here in the story outside of the king had the same status. They were all fellow servants. And yet the forgiven servant was violent, even choking this fellow servant. And just as he had done once, this this indebted servant pleaded for time so he could pay him back. But instead, the forgiven servant wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. This moment was about what pleased him with no consideration for anyone else. Despite having been forgiven of a debt that he could never repay ever in an act of complete selfishness, he had his fellow servant thrown into prison. Remember, when one was thrown into prison, they would stay there until they worked off their debt doing menial jobs from sunup to sundown, usually for the state, until the debt was paid. There was no regard for the other man's health, no regard for his family. He wanted his money. The other servants were shocked at what they had witnessed. They reported back to the master what occurred, and the king had the forgiven servant returned before him. And he pronounced uh, swift judgment upon him. Verse 32, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And because of this, his future actions should have been merciful. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Rhetorical question. The answer obviously should have been yes. 
but he was self-centered and he did not do so. So the master had him thrown into prison until his debt was paid. This was a little bit different. Your ESV softens this by saying jailer, but in Greek, the word is torture. This servant would pay his debt now in pain. Now that seems harsh to our 21st century ears. But again, in a first century context, even we would have to admit that it was just as it would have been the law that was what was required. Ruthless, yes, but just. It was what the servant deserved for his debt, much less for how he treated his fellow servant. The mean servant was only receiving what he deserved in the first place. No doubt such a parable was striking to the disciples here. They should forgive each other's offenses to the same extent that Jesus forgave them. And there is a warning here by Jesus in the conclusion. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. By saying from the heart, that indicates the forgiveness must be honest and true. It is not saying, well, I forgive you, but secretly still hold a grudge against the other person. Jesus is saying it must be complete, no record of wrongs. Now, I want to be careful that in our understanding of forgiveness that we don't misconstrue what that means. True forgiveness means that the offense of the matter is gone. The relationship has been reconciled and the brother and sister is restored to the full measure of love. But it does not mean that we still don't exercise prudence to the point that we act like it never happened. We're still to seek repentance together. If I've forgiven my brother who was stolen from me, I, I still don't want to put them in a place of temptation to steal again. If my friend is an addict, I don't want to put them in a situation where we attend an established together that's serving alcohol. If you spoke harsh words to me in anger, then I don't want to keep glossing over your sin and allow you to keep doing it. Rather, I patiently work with you in love to help you overcome your sin issues in Christ. We work on this together. We strive for repentance together, and I don't hold it against you. And you know what? As you do so, most likely you're going to blow it. But that's why I am supposed to forgive 77 times. Forgiveness does not mean passivity to allow others to continue in their sin, but rather a willingness, a, a strength to work with the offending party to bring about repentance. I hold no record of wrong, no offense of the past, but it does not mean I do not confront the sin in your life. The context of that is clear from verse 15. To allow you just to continue in recurring in sin is not love. It's just enabling. Forgiveness is not condoning the sin. It's letting go of the obligation to be vindicated for the sin. Let me say that again. I think we all need to hear it. Forgiveness is not condoning the sin. It is letting go of the obligation to be vindicated for the sin. But a question from verse 35. Is Jesus saying the Father will take away your salvation if you refuse to forgive? 
I'm going to answer that question with a resounding no. The reason an unforgiving person's salvation is not taken away is because they never had it to start with. They were not true citizens of the kingdom. They were pretenders. Because you cannot be a member of the body of Christ and refuse to forgive. It's impossible. You might go through periods of struggling to forgive someone, but eventually you do learn to forgive. Because someone that is aware of the full magnitude of their own sin, the huge debt that he or she owed God, the wrath that Christ took for the one of, even just one of those sins, much less all of them, and the right standing and freedom and accepting one now has before a holy, loving God because of Christ, that person can't help but have a forgiving spirit. It is infectious. I believe this because the Bible teaches it. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And immediately afterwards, he taught, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The love and forgiveness of Jesus is an impetus to love and forgive others. Look what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Likewise, he wrote to the church at Colossae. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. A distinct characteristic of a Christian is the desire and the ability to forgive an offense because we have been forgiven. Whoever forgives little, loves little. And the converse is true. If you have forgiven much, (laughs) you love much. So in way of conclusion, You have prayed, I know, forgive me, Lord, of my debts. But are you also praying as I have forgiven my debtors? Who have you not forgiven lately? Where are you still holding a grudge and seeking vindication? Because forgiving one another is the hinge upon which true church discipline operates. We conduct church discipline in anticipation of forgiveness. We go after the lost sheep in anticipation of forgiveness. No one of us is higher in status than the other because we are all sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Every believer has been granted uh, granted a mountain of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we must forgive from our hearts. This is hard stuff. I know it is because in offering forgiveness to another, it makes you vulnerable. It means I cannot demand anything else back from you and you hurt me. But I also tell you that by forgiving first, regardless of an apology, regardless of an act of contrition, you are taking the first step of love. You are freeing yourself of the bitterness and the burden of your wounded pride. You will be free to live without the bitterness regardless of the other person's response. And you will once again be empowered to put yourself back into the fight of helping your brother or your sister move towards repentance and love 
rather than staying in a constant state of angst and anger towards them. But it is only, when I think about it, only because I have been forgiven much that I have any hope that a relationship can be reconciled. It is only because I have witnessed it and seen it in my own life that I can have hope that I can approach someone who has offended me and know we can return back once again and restore that fellowship to what it once was. But perhaps you've not been able to forgive because you don't have the capacity to forgive. You've never known forgiveness yourself and you don't know how. And so aren't you tired of carrying around that grudge? Jesus invites you this day into his forgiveness. That way you can rise to the level of forgiveness is, is to always look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you. For, for while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. And when you see such love and mercy meet with, with blood flowing down from the brow of Jesus, knowing what he did for you, how could you not believe he loves me? He loves me, he loves me, and run into his embrace to be with him forevermore. Go to the cross of Jesus, and there you will find forgiveness of the guilt for every horrid action that you have ever committed over your lifetime, and forgiveness for every action you will commit in the future. Jesus' love, his mercy, is that big. It is like an ocean that you can just swim in and know he loves me. He loves me. Let's pray. Lord, I know that in the midst of this, just as I have contemplated it and looked at it and tried to receive it, there will always be these moments where we're going to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, I want to forgive, yeah, but. But Lord, allow us to consider how we have tried to justify our own actions before you. And allow that, Lord, to melt our resolve, to feel like we need to be the ones to be vindicated in such a time. But rather, the most important thing that we could think of, rather than our own vindication, our own pride, is to think of love towards our brother and sister who is in sin and struggling. Allow us to act like you in such moments. Teach us, Lord, what it means when you taught us earlier in this book. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Lord, I pray that you would make us into a people that understand what occurred at the cross and that by contemplating the cross, we would in turn be a people that are just gracious and merciful to every sinner that walks into these doors. We, I pray, Lord, that we would provide hope, that we would point them towards you that we would show them that, yes, they can be reconciled to a holy God because of the beauty of what your Son has done. I pray also, Lord, that we can model that in our day-to-day -day lives.
that we would forgive, that, Lord, we truly would take away the right to be vindicated in such moments and that we would strive to love others, to help them rise, to become more Christ-like in their lives and not, Lord, that we expect something in return. Teach us this on this day, O Lord. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.